Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater and the moderator for this meeting. Today is Sunday, January 24th, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 22nd, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,248. That's 16248. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,249. That's 16249. This morning, A Vision for You presents God is Behind the Door I Closed. The 12 steps, as outlined in the Big Book, represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We are driven into OA and the program of recovery by pain, by terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair that we experienced in the bondage of compulsive overeating. We are finally cornered by the disease. We stand weakened by self-pity, bent down by worries, fears, doubts, burdened by insecurities and discouragements, torn up by resentments, prejudices, and hates, hampered by our sense of frustration and futility. There we stand, a compulsive overeater at the jumping-off place. We submit to a process. We do lots and lots of work. This demonstrates our willingness to have our willfulness set aside. We agree to cooperate with God's grace, to let God build with us, changing our attitudes, our personalities, removing our character defects, rearranging our thoughts, our ideas, our emotions, and beliefs. We are offering ourselves humbly to God. A spiritual awakening can be thought of as a new state of consciousness and being, as a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating, and as an awareness of a power greater than ourselves. The big book speaks of a transformation stemming from access to a source of strength, a power God, who is behind the door we closed. Joining us today to elaborate on this topic and to share her experience, strength, and hope is Marie J., a recovered compulsive overeater from Colorado. Marie has been faithfully trudging the path of the 12 steps and eagerly carrying this message of recovery to those who still suffer. And it's with great appreciation and always a pleasure to welcome Marie J. to the line. Thank you, Leah. Thank you very much. I'm grateful to be here. And I'd like to begin 
by right now making a decision to turn this talk over to the higher power and ask for the capacity to hear God's voice today and just to make a difference in someone's life. And I trust that this will happen because I believe that there's a power greater than me who can and will restore me to sanity. And I embraced that in the second step. And that was a hard step for me to do. My name's Marie J, and I'm from Colorado. And uh, I like to think of myself lately as an unfinished God project. And today I'm going to share a story that is just from a few weeks ago. And it's painful. And I, I, uh, I'm going to share how these steps brought me to the solution and to freedom. And I always know I have the right topic to share if I feel a little vulnerable and a little uncomfortable. Oh, I'm not on speakerphone, Leah. Are you having trouble hearing me? That's a good thing. <laughs> Just you, making can sure. you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay, good. All right, great. So, um, you know, I'm a little vulnerable. I'm a little uncomfortable. And uh, God wants me to stretch. And my ego resists humility because my ego and my disease, which are one and the same to me, want to be seen as perfect. And so there's always this push and pull going on inside me. And that's what this program's about. It's choosing God over my character defects and then telling the story of falling down when I fail and how we in this community help each other to find that common solution, which is always a spiritual solution. So I'm recovered one day at a time right now when I'm in communion with this God of my understanding. And I'm grateful to have a God of my understanding, because it wasn't that way for most of my life. I was raised um, in a Catholic family. My father was a convert, and so he had a strong purpose to make sure his children accepted his beliefs about God and religion. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't accept his beliefs, and I suffered a false belief that I was a victim for most of my life because I was told to believe in something other than my own image of God, but I played the victim. And I'm the seventh child in a family of 10, and my experience in that family was one of neglect. And it was just out of the sheer number of people that needed attention in that family. My older siblings raised me, there were six ahead of me, and they were kids themselves, so they didn't have the skills. And I felt invisible. And I worked hard to be perfect. So I could just get that one at a girl. But it didn't come. I was a straight-A student. It was the early 70s, and everybody was doing drugs. But I was the good girl. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do sex. And I did tons of extracurricular activities, acting and singing and dancing. And I worked since I was 14 just looking for someone to notice me. My dad was an alcoholic, and he was an only child. And his father was an only child, and he was, he was in a detached and unloving family. His father was alcoholic, and his mother was a live-in maid and was gone from the home five days a week, living with a rich family. And so my father was raised by an alcoholic father. And my mother came from a family that was so poor that during the Depression, she and her sisters were sent to the orphanage for two years because there wasn't any food for them. My mother was uneducated, and she married my father because he was educated and he was really articulate. And they were pretty messed up. And then they had 10 kids. 
So I grew up with this core belief that I didn't matter. And that spills over frequently into my marriage today. I'm married to a man with ADHD, and I have twin 13-year-old sons, and they also have ADHD. And one of the characteristics of ADHD is that when something stops being the shiny new object, like me, the ADHD mind naturally moves on to the exciting and stimulating new things. And so frequently in my marriage and with my children, they're just completely uninterested in, in me. And I feel that lack of attention. And it reminds me of being an invisible child. And it strikes hard against this false belief that I don't matter. And then coupled with that, I have this huge, huge need for self-absorption or huge character defect. And I already demand an unreasonable level of attention. And I'm by no accident living with three people who are unable to attend my needs. So this program work is plentiful in my little family. You know, before problem or before program, I believed that it was their job to fill that hole, to give me that attention. And I demanded and coerced and I controlled. And when I didn't get what I wanted, I yelled and screamed. And I didn't get what I wanted anyway, because that's not the source. And I was the one who paid the hefty price because I was the one who turned to food as my solution for my miserable life. And life doesn't work that way. I had to stop believing in this illusion of control that if I just put enough demand and effort to make people change, then they will. It doesn't work that way. And so it was 1987 when I got into 12-step programs, and I wasn't married by by this time. I was young, and I realized that I had a pattern of dating alcoholics, just like my dad, and I started an ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Codependents Anonymous, in Chicago, and it was my late 20s. And I spent 11 years in that program and acted as a victim. I never cracked open a big book. I never even understood that this was a spiritual program. But I did get something out of those days, and I was pretty religious about going to the meetings, but I played victim the whole time. I never kind of got past that. But I did start my search for higher power. I was a seeker, and I believed I needed to have a higher power. But the conflict between the God I was raised with and a new understanding of God didn't surface in those early days. I wanted to know a true God. But I didn't practice any relationship, and I never surrendered, and I didn't really work the steps too hard. And then in 1998, I moved to Colorado, and um, I went to a few meetings, um, but they weren't like Chicago, and I, I just rejected them. They were tiny. I was embarrassed. I was insecure, and I stayed away for 15 years. And now, thankfully, I don't have any excuse because I can find a meeting online or on the phone anywhere in the world. And the embracing of technology has made so much more possible today, and I can have such rich exchange in this community. But then I discovered my addiction and came into program again in OA in 2013. I had become obese, and I was just plain angry. I had gotten married 10 years earlier, and I had twins at 48, and I thought that's what would fill my spiritual void. So I came into OA 
the morning after my kid's fifth birthday. And my sister is my Ebby. She's a recovered alcoholic. And she brought me into the room. She came and held my hand. I was terrified. So the best way to share how I was before program is just to read you my list of character defects. When I did my sixth step, and I've done it several times, um, just enhancing it, I made a list of character defects and I put them in order of priority, which is how often I go to each of these character defects when I'm agitated. And I just asked myself, what's my first reaction when something doesn't go my way? And so I have a list of my top 14 go-to behaviors when I do not turn to God and rather I turn to myself. So here's the list. Self-centered is first. My first thought is about how this event affects me, whatever's going on that isn't going my way. And then self-righteous. My thought is about being right and the other person being wrong. And then self-reliant. I'm the only one who can be in charge. I'm the only one who can do anything right, and I'm alone. Self-important, my needs are more important than anyone else in the room. Self-involved, I'm absorbed in my own thoughts and my own interests and not others. Self-serving, which is entitlement, I deserve. Self-seeking, it's excessive attention getting, self-indulgent, deserving of all my desires to be met, self-pity, playing victim and holding others responsible for my happiness and demanding that you change, selfish, wanting my way, and self-preservation, being invulnerable, being guarded, and lacking trust. So my first 11 out of my 14 character defects begin with self which I thought was pretty, pretty darn special there. And then the top off the list, there's perfection, perfectionism, judgment, and fear. And that's how it was. And the details of my story are long. I'm a 61-year-old woman. I got a lot of history. But I can net it out to say that my story is one of just being a victim and how I held everyone but myself responsible for my happiness. And my behavior was always demanding and self-righteous and entitled. And I clung to that story. And I never saw my behavior as being anything but correct. It was my job to get what I needed and your job to provide it. And I never saw anything wrong with that. And what I realized when I was thinking about this story, the story I'm going to tell you today, is I've averted back to that behavior. But this time... While it was happening, I did see how I was. I saw clearly, and I was ashamed, and I couldn't stop. And back then, I found enough people willing to suffer my abuse, and I used them to my own end. But in the end, I was never happy, and I had no intimate relationship. And when I left Chicago after 20 years, and not one soul stayed in touch, no one called, after I treated them to so many years of lavish parties, and I was such a good friend, I thought. And I blamed them for being bad friends. But I never saw that. I was selfish, and I was never intimate. I didn't build relationships because I was so self-centered in the extreme. I um, want to talk a little bit about identification. Um, I read some stuff that was really good. I don't remember where this came from, but 
It said we locate ourselves through identification within our community, searching for the same answers we are searching for, and then we find where we fit in. And this is what I found in OA. I found identification. At first, when I was new, I did what you did. I complied. I had my checklist of the things I needed to do recovery for recovery. And I imitated you. And there's, there was value in that. You know, there's a slogan, a slogan in program that says, fake it till you make it. And I wanted what you had, so I did what you did. Even though I didn't really feel the connection and I didn't feel recovery for a while. And what I learned for myself is imitation is not enough for me, but it was a good place to start. I had to identify, though. I had to go further than imitation. I had to identify with you. And I had to connect through your stories, and my own story had to be shared. And I was really afraid to speak up in the early days. And one thing I love so much about my sponsor is she kept asking me to share on the lines long before I felt ready. And she said, everyone has something to share. And in telling my story, I will find God. I'm going to find connection in this community. And my story is full of pain. And in hearing your stories, I find the common weakness in our, in our humanity. And that helps me to find the identification. And then it helps me to find the shared strength we have. I have to crack open and tell my story about the pain and the grief and the vulnerability. I need to hear yours too. And it's in community and serving each other that we find where we belong and we find how to stay recovered. So it's not about my wisdom or your wisdom. It's about connection and mutually helping each other to identify our common experience. And then we find where we fit in and fitting in involves engaging with the community that is engaged in the quest for the answer to our most anguished questions, all of our whys. And we find our friends in this community and our friends who are also our guides, whether you are in your first day or your 20th year, we find the people in outreach who guide us. And it's all the same. And I didn't want to burden people with my phone calls in the beginning because I felt so broken and so needy. And I was so afraid to share my story. I was so afraid to be real and vulnerable. But those of us who are recovered today need the newcomer's call, not to be the sage and not to be the guide, but to be guided by the newcomers in sharing pain and grief. So this program is a mutual exchange, and everyone I speak with is my guide. And when I was new, I didn't believe that I had something to contribute. But the contribution was the same then as it is today. I share my story of what happened and where the pain is, and someone identifies with it, and we build community in the shared quest for a solution. And there's only one solution, and it's spiritual. So the difference in imitating that I did in the beginning and identification that I seek now is the desire to become whatever is necessary for recovery and to have that deep in my soul and at my core. And that requires deep honesty and openness and humility. It says that over and over and over in our big book, I want to become like that person who has modeled humility for me. And I've been working on this for a long time. And this story feels like a breakthrough 
because it really requires some humility to tell really what happened because it was a painful and vulnerable experience. And I failed in my practice of reliance on God and keeping that door open to love and compassion. And what I know is I'll fail again. But next time, maybe I'll have more awareness and perhaps it won't be a self-centered, as self-centered. And perhaps the humility will rise up in me because I know I'm safe coming here and telling the truth. And I know that there are hundreds of people on this line who have experienced the same falling down. So I'll tell you the story now. Um, If you've ever heard me talk, you'll hear once again that my husband is my greatest teacher. And today I have a new story. It's a recent story of God being behind the door. I closed. And what that means to me is that something happened that agitated me. And rather than turning toward God, turning toward love and compassion, I turned to self and my 11 self-centered defects of character plus perfection, judgment, and fear. Because I'm always afraid when something doesn't go my way. I'm afraid I'm going to lose something I've got or not get something I demand. And that's closing the door on God. I chose self over God. And I can't serve those masters simultaneously. I can't serve self and God at the same time. And in this program, I learned that I can't serve self ever and still have God for, oh, these things over here that are easy to do and I choose. I have to always strive for spiritual perfection, but I'll never have it. So I have to be able to face the truth when I fall down. So in our family, my husband is kind of a good guy, and I'm the disciplinarian. And it doesn't help that I'm the only female. And my twins are now going through puberty, and they're becoming more grown up, more male, and less like the little boys who always wanted to snuggle with mom. So there's already an identification issue right there in this story in my family. And it's particularly hard to tell this story because it's vulnerable. It's still a bit raw because it only happened a few weeks ago after the holidays. And my ego wants you to think of me as perfect and put me on a pedestal so that I can get my value from your opinion of me. But when I think of the pedestal, I have this strong visual. And if you can picture with me, like a dowel rod, a, a light wooden dowel rod that's an inch around and it's a hundred feet and in the air it's a pole a hundred feet in the air and it's an inch wide and it's going up into the sky and on top of that pole is a little four inch round platform and on top of that platform is me standing on one foot in four inch heels in the middle of a Colorado blizzard and that's how unstable this pedestal is my ego wants to be on. It's not sustainable to be that perfect, to be able to balance. But my ego wants to be admired and wants to get its validation and value from your good opinion of me. So I don't want to show you the truth, but the truth sets me free. And to speak the truth, I have to become vulnerable and share my flaws with this community. And the unfortunate news is that sometimes The fastest way to learning the lessons God has put in front of me is through spiritual pain because I'm stubborn. In my disease, I want to be God and I want to be on top of that pedestal. 
And that's because as a child, I didn't have a voice and I wasn't validated and I wasn't esteemed. So every time my husband does something that triggers me and it, it triggers the past, it's hard to pause and I jump to conclusions in my mind. And then I turn toward my character defects and I become God. At least in my mind, I become God. And that's pretty telling about my emotional maturity and my obsession with self. And I've been, I've been recovered for a pretty long time. So what happened a couple of weeks ago is my husband and I had talked about some rules that we need to establish with the boys and building some structure and having some boundaries. And we agreed on what would be done. And I decided to bring it up on one Saturday after we had decided what we agreed to because I'm the one usually bringing these things up. I'm the one who wants to set rules and boundaries in our household. And the boys pushed back. They didn't want to do what I would suggest. So I went through it again. It was getting a little spirited, but it wasn't falling apart. And then my husband turned to them and he said, I don't know what she's talking about. I never agreed to any of this. And he totally threw me under the bus. And the rage that built up in me instantly was so powerful. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't pause. I couldn't turn to God. <clears throat> and all my self-righteousness came out. And I disrespected and abused my, my husband in front of my children. I called him names and I screamed. And I was a raging lunatic. It was just like the compulsion to eat before I had recovery. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop the compulsion to eat before recovery, before I had God in my life. And I couldn't stop this compulsion to attack and be right and control and seek vengeance. And this really felt like something different than any conflict that we've had in the last eight years. But then I realized that it's because I was clear that I used to treat him that way all the time in my disease, but I couldn't see through it because of the fog of addiction and the fog of sugar in my life and booze and all that. And this time I could see it clearly and I still couldn't stop. Even when my kids went to his defense and tried to intervene, which was frankly incredibly painful to see my children stand up for my husband and come back after me. But even then I couldn't stop and I attacked the kids. So the big book tells me to pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for an intuitive thought or Marie Star One Ton Mute. All right, we'll just pause here for a moment as we wait for Marie to call back in. Thank you. Hi, I'm back. I'm sorry, I lost you. Wonderful. Come on, just resume. Okay. No problem. Okay. <laughs> Um, 
So the big book tells me to pause when I'm agitated or doubtful and ask for an intuitive thought or action, but none of this is happening. I couldn't find God because God was behind this door I closed when I went to self as God. And I decided that self was more important than God, than love and compassion. And so my husband, who is credit, calmed down and he wanted to talk, but I was having none of it. And so I stopped yelling, but I went to bed mad and I wasn't able to talk about it. And I got up with a raging emotional hangover and I was full of regret and I was questioning my recovery. I was full of shame. And it's times like these that remind me that the need for higher power is so great when my shame is so high and I don't think I can ever possibly deserve forgiveness. And then I question whether I have any faith at all, whether I have any recovery at all. And thankfully, this level of acting out in my spiritual disease is rare. And this particular time was the worst I've seen in a lot of years. And as I said earlier, the, you know, the unfortunate news is sometimes the fastest way to learn is through spiritual pain. I have to see what I'm capable of doing when I turn towards self. And this event showed me that my spiritual work is never done. I'm not cured. And I only have recovery, as it says in the big book, contingent upon the daily maintenance of my spiritual conditions. So I got up at 3 a.m. And I finally had enough humility to ask God to take over and help me have faith that there was a way out of this mess. And I wrote a letter to God exploring my resentment and I like to write a letter before I write a 10 steps so that I can examine the historic reasons for my outburst so I can begin to have a little compassion because I can see where some of my past is triggered by my husband. So I can easily get trapped in my patterns of the past and then blame him in the present. And what I know about myself and my marriage is that when something bothers me to the point where I can't pause and something explosive and and emotional rises in me, I'm pretty sure it's not about my husband. I'm pretty sure it's about something that has happened in the past that I haven't let go of and I haven't forgiven. And he's just triggering something that is unresolved from my childhood. And in this case, God took me right to my dad. I didn't have a relationship with my dad. He worked all the time. He was an alcoholic. And when he was home, he sat in his green room and read and drank martinis until 9 p.m. And then he went to bed and he got up at 5 a.m. and he left. And if there was any conversation, it was just one way aimed in anger toward whomever was in the past disturbing him. And I sometimes believe that I'm disturbing my husband when he reacts impatiently when I address him and he's doing something else. And the reaction is real. He does get a little short with me. But that's just his ADHD mind trying to shift his attention to the new thing, me. And I often take it because I'm so self-centered. It's something I did or how I'm a burden to him or he must not love me. And it's untrue, but I jump to conclusions and I jump to self-absorption. And so my dad wasn't a saint, but I later... What I learned after a lot of fourth-step work on him over the years is that he had a tender and broken heart. His dad was a bad drunk. His dad stumbled into the street at 4 a.m. and got hit by a truck and killed when my dad was just 10. And his mom left him with the neighbors all week while she was a living maid for a family a few hours away, and the neighbors didn't want him 
and they weren't so nice to him. He had no family. He was no saint, but he had a hard life, and he didn't have the skills or the support to be the father of 10 children. And I think all he worried about was feeding 12 mouths. And it's not an excuse for his behavior, but it permitted compassion to rise up in me. It permitted me to step away from my own self-centeredness and to examine my fear. Because my fear is I'm so much like him that I'm afraid that I will end up like him, lonely and sad and not belonging to anyone. And I'm the breadwinner in our family. I've been this the whole time. You know, we had twins late in our lives, and I was the one who could earn the money, so my husband became the stay-at-home dad. So I had the pressure of financial responsibility for four lives, and I'm self-employed. And we have expensive extracurricular activities, expensive technology, and college for two coming up in a few years at the same time. And because we're older, retirement is looming. Will we have enough is a frequent fear, and it's a lot of pressure. But what I learned in this particular inventory was that what Chris triggered in me was not really about my dad. It was about my mother setting up my dad to be the bad guy with us kids. He was always set up as a perpetrator, and she was the hero. She was the mom extraordinaire. She was the rescuer. And as a result, I blamed my dad for everything, and I never had a relationship with him. When he came home at night, I ran and hid in my bedroom. I was so afraid of him. And later when I was a young adult and when my dad began to realize and even went to some AA meetings and made an effort to have a relationship, I didn't forgive him. I didn't even make an attempt to have a relationship. I didn't have recovery. I didn't know anything about the 12 steps. I had never picked up the big book. And so today, even after I've enjoyed almost eight years of recovery, God has brought something new to me to look at. And this is what daily maintenance of my spiritual condition is about. And in this instance, with this event with my husband and children, I fell on my face big time. So when I did my work the next morning at 3 a.m., I made a long list of the character's defects I acted out on. And this included shame and hatred and disrespect of my husband, self-righteousness, disrespect of myself and who I want to be, criticism and judgment, victimization and blame, lack of faith, selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking and fear. And then there was hopelessness and pride. And I used to ask before recovery in situations like this, where was God? Because I felt God abandoned me. So what I've learned is God is always behind the door I close when I choose in those moments to turn towards self. And I can't choose to serve the God of self and the God of love at the same time. So there I was being the power. But it was a power born of self-righteous anger for something my husband wasn't even responsible. And it's not that he didn't do anything. He definitely threw me under the bus, and he was Pharaoh and the good guy. But my spiritual commitment, my spiritual commitment in this program is to pause and take my own inventory. And nothing I can say will change his behavior anyway. And when I'm hateful and disrespectful in front of the children, all it does is damage everyone. I'm not going to get anywhere with that behavior. 
No one's going to change, and all of us are going to be injured. So my spiritual commitment is to make a decision to put God in charge. That's the third step. So in that morning emotional hangover, I still had to make a decision to put God in charge. And when I finally did and I found some humility, surrender rose up in me. Surrender is not the action. The decision I make to surrender everything to God, the decision to surrender my will in my life is the action. And surrender rises up. When I decide to be in charge and I surrender to my character defects, that's when I have trouble. And when I let God take the reins, I surrender to love and compassion. And I experience clarity and calm. Um, I have my favorite, my favorite uh, sentence in the big book is on the bottom of page 13. And it says, belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the, the essential requirements. So putting God in charge is the new order of things in my life, and it is the essential requirement for my recovery. And I finally began to understand all of this 10 years after my dad was gone and 16 years into a marriage that has me reliving some of this past and blaming my husband for the mistakes I experienced as a child. And then that morning I had to surrender the shame and the belief that I had no recovery. Because how could I be so cruel after 18 years with my husband and two children? How could I be so self-righteously disrespectful? He's not perfect, but he doesn't deserve. And I have no right to treat anyone that way. And I've been aware of this and working on it for some time and making great progress in this program with God in the driver's seat and practicing the steps. But this one came out of the blue. It blindsided me. And it's the first time in a long time that I have had this deep level of shame that I had to work hard to accept being a human being with flaws because I still, my ego and my disease still want to get up on that pedestal and think I am right. And I had to tell the truth and that hurt. And I also had to look at my values and look at who I am in the world and who I want to be. In November, December, I was doing some values work on my own and, and, and just establishing, you know, what is important. And I learned that my number one value, the thing that drives my life is connection. And it's connection with all things. It's with spirit. It's with God. It's with family. It's with you. It's the connection that I have that connects my heart and soul to others. And when this happened, I violated my most important value when I decided to turn my will and my life over to self. And when I looked at the perfectionism in this, I had to realize that my ego does not want others to see my wounds and my imperfection. And as an addict, I want to hide the truth about who I am. I'm a flawed human being. So when I'm acting out in my character defects, And turning to itself, I want to hide the truth. And I want to present to you and the world the flawless human being, the one who's on the pedestal, the one who's wise and authentic and spiritually perfect. And that is the one that has false pride. 
and this is my disease. The big book tells us we will never achieve anything like perfection in these principles. And so I have to do this daily maintenance of my spiritual connection to allow God to show me the way to establish the new order of things. I'm no longer running the show with self. And what I learned in this time is there are always deeper levels of recovery for me. And God will show me the dark corners of my human condition. And my job is not to try to be God and deny my human frailty. It is to accept all that God has given me, the good and the bad. And when I try to be perfect and preserve this false self, I come out phony and inauthentic. And then I have to justify my false beliefs. And it's just a messy pack of lies. It leads to my taking inventory of others and sitting on that shaky and false pedestal of pride. And it's a horrible life living in false pride. So I want to tell you about the amend and my family. I called my family together after several hours of working on this with God. And my son, Adam, followed me up the stairs and he said, Mom, I know what you're doing and you don't have to to apologize for everything. And I can't tell you how I loved hearing those words. You know, my 13-year-old may not understand recovery today, but he's seen his mother get vulnerable and ask for forgiveness. And that's the greatest gift of all that this program has given me. My sons get to see that their mother is not perfect and not pretending she is. And Adam has the bravado of a teenager. But if I continue to be the example, it will be both of my sons' experience. And they will learn acceptance of themselves and their own flaws. And they will get to experience being asked for forgiveness, and they will learn to forgive. And they've gotten this since their fifth birthday when I came into OA. You know, I didn't know my dad was a flawed and fragile human being until I was 50 and he was dead. And I'm very sad about that. And through the steps, I found compassion and forgiveness, and now I get to pass it on. Not through my telling, but through my behavior. And the process of making that family amend is critical to living in these steps and taking the actions that ensure my sobriety, my emotional sobriety. And it was tough and it was vulnerable and I cried and I was humbled. And what happened next was so beautiful and unexpected. My husband, who's not vulnerable, he's not intimate, and he's a man of few words, especially when it comes to emotional sharing, And he told the boys that even though their mother was apologizing for her behavior, he was indeed at fault for what he said, and he was also sorry, and he asked their forgiveness. So he surrendered to the goodness in him through attraction, not promotion. Honesty, openness, and humility to establish the new order of things. The big book tells me these are the essential requirements for freedom. And then joy and happiness follows. And I felt so much joy that day, really deep joy. My physical body and my emotions were wrung out. You know, I was kind of a wet wet noodle. And I was wrecked a lot of the day physically because it's hard work. But my heart was cracked open and my soul was free. I, um, I heard somewhere that the only true freedom a human being can ever know is doing what you ought to do because you want to do it. And when I made the amend to each of my family in front of the others, 
I was afraid, and I still had some shame I was holding on to. And it took courage because it took vulnerability, and I was exposed. No matter what the truth was about my husband's actions, I was compelled to clean up mine. And this program and working these steps creates a desire and a drive in me to do what I ought to do because I want to do it. I didn't want to focus on my shortcomings, and I didn't want to let go of his inventory and how much he has done this over and over, and I didn't want to give up on my victimization and the vindication that I sought. I wanted God to change him so that I could continue to be right. And what's the payoff? The payoff is, is false pride. I get to continue to believe that I'm right and I'm superior and I'm self-important and I'm entitled to respect and admiration no matter what I do. I get to prove that I can balance in a four-inch heel on one foot, 100 feet in the air, in a blizzard, on a pedestal of false pride. The payoff is that in my mind, I get to be God. Or I can be humble. I can be vulnerable and expose my dark, car- uh, my dark corners. And I can risk ridicule and rejection from the people I need and love most. It's easy to fall prey to being God in my mind, but it leaves me with self-loathing and shame. And that cost is too great when I know what I'm giving up, the experience of God, of pure love and compassion and joy. But I know there's no mistakes or accidents in God's world. In order to go deeper spiritually, I need to be shown where there's still work to be done. And sometimes it means I have to watch the human being in me take charge. And I'm grateful that those deep and painful lessons are rare. And I'm also grateful that the depth of the pain leaves an an indelible mark on my soul. Where I used to be blinded and and foggy and couldn't see my behaviors and my abuses toward those I love. And I was forgiven and I was able to surrender the shame and we all made it to the other side and I found greater gratitude for what higher power had to teach me. And I even found gratitude to be able to work the steps as I sat in my shame. And it took five hours of my morning and it doesn't always take that kind of time. But in the past, I used to just put it in a box and hide it on the top shelf of the closet in the dark, telling myself it wasn't that bad. And I never looked at myself again. And that lack of honesty and and the lack of humility perpetuates this disease and withholds my freedom. It it withholds my, my connection to God and to my family and to others. And the beauty of it is, since then, my kids have been more snuggly on the couch with me, hanging out with me. Chris has hung out with me more and opened up more about his own relationship with his own father who's still alive. So there's some hope thing that gets opened up. Firepower is amazing. And the rewards of self-examination are far greater than the pain of living in false self. And I will make more mistakes. I'm sure of that. I will hurt those I love most again. And that's the sentence of being human. And that's the acceptance that I have to have. I love myself today, and it wasn't always so. I lived in self-loathing in the past and most of my life. 
and I hid it even from myself. I was dishonest about it. And this book and these instructions and the willingness to do the work are the gifts of my life. And belief in the power of God such enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things are the essential requirements for my recovery. God is always here and always present. I don't ever buy into the notion that God's not here. It's only when I turn toward myself that God appears to be gone, but God is always there behind the door I close. And God waits patiently behind that door I close, never leaving, just knocking, just knocking and knocking until I wake up and I open it up and let God in. That's all I have to share today. And um Turn it back over to you, Leah. Thank you so much, Marie, for this beautiful presentation this morning. Thank you for sharing your experience and personal insights with all of us with such great honesty and vulnerability. Very touching and inspiring. Marie's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. The share ID for today's presentation, 16,262, that's 16262. We will now transition to question and answers. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Cynthia C. Cynthia C. Larry K. Gotcha, Larry. Becca R. Becca. Chevy K. Is that Chevy K? Yes. KB. KB, is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Barbara N. Barbara E. S. Barbara S. Thank you. Johanna S. K. Who has the last yes. initial of K? That would be Stacy. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Leah. Brenda M. Brenda M. Linda M. Yes. Gotcha. Thank you for the correction. Okay. Donna S. And Donna. Okay. But that's an ample list to start with. Cynthia C. Larry K. Becca R. Chevy K. K. B. Barbara S, Stacy K, Linda M, and Donna. Okay. Everybody, please mute. Let's begin with Cynthia C. This is Cynthia C, Recovered Compulsive Eater and Food Addict in Newton, Massachusetts. May I be heard, Leah? I hear you well. Great. Thank you. Marie, oh, my gosh. Thank you so so much. It was literally just what I needed to hear this morning. So I'm so glad I came onto the meeting. Um, I'm wondering. I know. I know you work a strong program, and I. I know you dig down very deep in the step work. Could you talk? Could you just drill down a little bit more about maybe a little bit more about your daily day? Like, how are you balancing doing your 11th step? Maybe doing your 10th step. Um, you know, how, how are you getting your step work done with managing? Uh, you know. With, with balancing family and work, and, and how are you making the time to dig deep into your your 11th step each day? 
with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Cynthia, my friend. Good to hear your voice. Um, I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I never used to get up. I, it, it, was, it was so hard to even drag myself out of bed um, for, the, for the 7 a.m. meeting, which is 5 a.m. here. And it was really hard, but I, I pushed and pushed until I got to a point where I could adjust my life. Sleep is very important to me for balancing all things. And you know that I've got kids. I've, I'm the breadwinner. I'm self-employed. I have, I have sponsees. I have my own personal work. There's a lot to balance. But what I know is that is also something I turn over to God every single day. I mean, I roll over in bed and go, okay, God, we got another busy day, you know, so I am, I'm turning it over to you. I probably have 25 things on my list to do today, and I can probably get three or four or five done. So I'm going to write my, my plan for the day. I have my calendar. I have my to-do list. And, and, and before I start my day, I just turn to God and say, you're in charge. When the phone rings, I will answer it. If it's, if it's program, if, if somebody needs me, if it's work, you know, I will do what you put in front of me. And I trust that you will give me the income I need. I trust that you will bring the business I need. And I trust that I'll get the things done that are important. So I do wake up early and I do go to bed at a reasonable time. I get about seven hours of sleep. I'd like to get a little more, but seven hours is pretty darn good for my life. And it's important for the balance. And I also have boundaries around things like when I do work with the sponsors. You know, everything's done early in the morning so that I do that important part of my spiritual practice and I don't get caught up in work and family. And after 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I don't take any calls or have nighttime calls or do meetings at night because that's my family time. So I chunk it out and I give it to God. Thank you for your question, Cynthia. Yes, thanks, Cynthia. Larry Kay, you're up. Oh, thanks so much, Marie. Thank you for your <laughs> no laughing, Marie. This is a very sad group here. Okay, and I just want to write. Uh, <laughs> I just want to first say, uh, and then I'll get right to the question. Um, welcome, you know, to the club of redeemable wackadoodles, um, misfits. Right? Uh, we're redeemable. My sponsor tells me we have a a name for people like you, Marie. Human beings, he says. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to the question, to the question. Can you speak, you, you have done a lovely job in doing that. Can you speak to, from a big book perspective, of course, can you speak to the notion of um, humility? Um, you know, we, we have a knack of making uh, kings and queens of the room. It's like, uh, you know, being at the head of your class in summer school, I've heard it said. Um, can you speak to humility from a big book perspective and, and, and just this, this notion of, 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 you know, a daily kind of trudge um, and the surrender with humility? Can you speak to that? Thanks so much, Marie. Mm, thanks, Larry. That's, that's really a great question, especially coming from you, because I have to admit that when I came in, <clears throat> you, were, you were my sponsor's sponsor, and um, I was terrified to call you because I put you on a pedestal and I didn't understand it because when we're new and we're not recovered 
And I, for one, thought I had nothing to give and nothing to offer. And I remember when she told me to call you, and she says, you need to call him and you need to work out this 10th step. And it took me weeks to get off the nerve to call you because I put you on a pedestal. And that's not where you want to be, and that's not where God wants any of us to be. And so this notion of humility, which is always an effort for me because I have so much self-righteousness when I'm operating in self, when I'm turning towards my character defects rather than turning toward God, I don't have humility because I am superior and I am right. And so this has been a, a really big trudge for me to, it was easy for me to think I'm not a, as good as anyone. It was easy for me to think so low of myself. And it was easy for me to let you and, and others who get put on pedestals be there. And and it's, it's in the big book, you know, humility is, not believing I am less than or better than anyone. And when we turn toward people and we make, and we make them something that they aren't in, our, in anywhere except our minds, it's unfair. It's unfair to them and it's unfair to ourselves because I automatically put myself below. And that's not humility. Humility is equal. We are all here on the same plane, at the same time, equal. And we are all each other's teachers. We are all each other's guides. That's why I love talking to newcomers. I get so much from listening to the pain of newcomers and not because I want to be the sage, not because I want to have the wisdom, but because I need to be reminded of where I am one day away from. Today I have recovery one day at a time, dependent upon my spiritual connection with God. And so that in itself brings humility. I'm equal to everyone, whether they have one day of recovery, no days of recovery, or 20 years of recovery. I'm not special. We're all special together. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Becca R., Star one to unmute. Hey, it's Becca R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Kentucky. Thanks for an excellent share. I could so relate to um, making amends with your husband, and that's where my question comes in. Do you ever find um, that you need to do a different approach in making amends? Maybe if it's um, the same fight or the same argument or the same hurt uh, and um, rather than just going and, and, and saying the script, you know, I've wronged you and um, how, what does that look like for you? Thanks. Thanks, Becca. I um, you, you are from my, my home of origin. I was born in Kentucky. It's a special place for me. Um, I think every time I do an amend with my husband, it is a different approach. And I, and I say that because when I just do the chart for the 10th step, and I can go, okay, my selfishness is I want something a different way. It doesn't really get any deeper. And I really have to look at what is this triggering from my past? And what is this 
specific action. And, and like you said, a lot of times it's the same offense that I get riled up about because I have some deep unresolved issue from the past. So I have to look at this every time. And, and so the approach with my husband, what I, what I try to do is for every specific thing that happens for which I develop a resentment, I don't only look at um, dishonesty, uh, sorry, uh, self-seeking dishonesty, selfishness, and fear. I know that that's the big book's instructions, and I think that just about every other character defect can fit in one of those four. But I also try to take a look at the words that have meaning to me. Like selfishness is also self-righteousness. And that's, but, but that word self-righteousness is very powerful for me, and it says something. So I go to my character defect list of 14 and say, which of the ones that I specifically act out on happens here? And what did he do or what did somebody do in the past that I blame him for in this moment happen? And when I give my amend to my husband, I talk about that. I tell him, I was disrespectful, disrespectful to you because this is what happened in my past. And I'm still clinging to that with my father or my mother or whatever, whomever. And, and, I'm blaming you for the, for the mistakes of the past, for my upbringing, for unresolved things that I need to now go and resolve. I need to get with God and resolve those. So sometimes I have to go and work on another 10 step with my dead father because I uncover something that my husband is triggering. So every amend has all of those components. They can get long. Fortunately, I don't do it a lot. So, you know, I'm getting better at it. Uh, does that answer your question, Becca? Yes, thank you. It was very helpful. Thank you. Chevy K, your turn. Thank you, Becca. Chevy K. Hi, um, this is Chevy K. Oh, we covered in New Jersey. Marie, thank you so much for a beautiful podcast. Um, I always love to hear your voice. Um, the question I have, um, I know you touched on, um, but I was just wondering if you would be able to be a little more specific um, in your personal process around reaching um, the place of serenity and amends in this particular instance with your husband and children. Um, what did the actual process look like um, in terms of 10 steps? your own work with God um, for you to reach that place of serenity. Um, I know that many times when I go through this process, um, I find myself stuck for a number of days, um, um, sometimes, you know, even a week before I feel free um, and I reach the place that I actually, you know, feel serenity with everything. Um, and I was just wondering if you could um, give a little insight on that. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. I love you. I know. <laughs> I love hearing your voice, too. So, um, yes, that, that's uh, something I can speak to. So um, the process, 
the physical process, in, in this case, it was, a, it was a pretty deep one and it was a pretty long process for me. It was five hours before the whole thing was done. So I was up at three in the morning and by eight in the morning, I had the, had the conversation with my family. And so the, the first thing that happened is I had to feel, feel and acknowledge the shame that I was, I was conflicted with this push-pull of my disease and God with my, my disease and my ego wanting to be superior and self-righteous and my desire to be rid of the shame and turn toward God and, and knowing, you know, I have, to have, I have to have my second step. You know, a lot of times I say my second step before I start this process of doing a tenth step. I have to say, God, I believe that you can restore me to sanity. So the process of doing the tenth step only happens and, and, and evolves into the serenity if I am doing my practice every day of, of surrendering to God and saying, my first step, I'm powerless. I'm powerless over my emotional sobriety. I'm powerless over my thoughts and my emotions. I'm powerless over food. I believe you can restore me to sanity, and I'm making a decision right now to turn my will and my life over to you. So I do that every day. I do that work to stay in that daily maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I don't always feel the, the fuzzy and excited and woo-woo feeling of being connected to God, but it doesn't mean that God's not there in my life. It doesn't mean that I'm not committed and I'm not surrendered. So I practice that. And so that when it comes to doing a 10 step, I can get there. And um, reaching that um, level of, getting to where I really see my part has, has to do with a few things. I have to look at the historic nature. What is this triggering from my past? That to me, I, I, don't, know, I don't know who did that in program. I know that part is not in the, the big book, but um, Herb Kay or someone uh, put that in. Like, look at where this is coming from. What is the historic nature of this? And for me, that's a very helpful tool before I start my 10th step to be able to look at what is this triggering from my past? Because I love my husband. I chose my husband. I want to be with my husband. As much as he triggers me, I want to be him with him. I chose him 18 years ago. And so there's that piece of it. So I can then also get out of my, all my 11 self-centered character defects and say, what if I stood in his shoes for a minute? What's going on for him? You know, and I'm able to say, ooh, he's got an ADHD mind. Maybe he's not neglecting me. Maybe his mind is just full of all this input because that's how he is. And maybe it's hard for him to shift and to change. And maybe I have to give him more uh, information about what I need. Maybe I need to talk more about it. So I put myself in his shoes. And then I have to be in acceptance. I have to accept and love myself in spite of my falling on my face. Because as Larry just said, you know, I am, I'm a frail, flawed human being. Welcome to being human, right? I have to accept that. And I have to process that shame. And sometimes I don't even get to the shame because I'm still stuck in my self-righteousness. I'm still wanting to be right. So I have to process whatever the character defect is. And I, it is through acceptance of the conditions of my life, the life I inhabit. It is through acceptance of that as being 
in perfect alignment with God's will for me and for my spiritual growth, that surrender can rise up. And sometimes I stay uncomfortable. Sometimes it doesn't come right away, the relief. And sometimes I have to work these same things over and over, but I choose to do that. And I ask that I get to the next level of deep connection and forgiveness. And we just keep doing it every day. And we go deeper. That's all I try to do is go deeper. God, there is something I'm missing here. And I need some guidance. I need your help. Thank you, Chevy. KB, star one to unmute. Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes. Thank you so much for your service, and thank you so much for um, the experience, strength, and hope that you've shared. It's been such a treat. My question has two parts. The first part is, of the value work that you did where you found connection was at the top, what are the subsequent values that you determined That's the first part. The second part is, how have you functionally taken um, another person off the pedestal but still maintained a relationship with the person? My question. Thank you. Kay, can you explain that a little bit more, taking the person off the pedestal? Sure. Um, so once we realize that we need to put God in the first position, and if it's another person that we're um, having on a pedestal, how do how have you put them back on a plane of equality, yet still maintained a relationship with them, mm. rather than just taking them out of the out of your life, or rather taking and taking yourself out of their life to back on a plane of equality, and still maintained a relationship. Great. Thanks for that. those two questions. I'm going to address the second one first. Um, I think that putting people on a pedestal is, is something I do in my mind. And so when I think of someone as better than me and I go to them in fear and, you know, um, thinking less of myself and, and their God and what they have to say is, is uh, the most important thing. That's all happening in my mind. It's not necessarily happening with their knowledge. And, and especially in program. I, I used to do that a lot in program. I, there were those who I saw as the gurus and the ones who knew everything, the wise ones. And so Taking them off the pedestal is not about reducing them. It's about raising myself up to a position of equality. I, in my, in my humanness, in my frailty, in my flawedness, still have something to contribute. Every person on this line has something to contribute. Even if, even if someone's not recovered, even if somebody's on their first day, even if somebody hasn't achieved abstinence yet, we all have something to share. And, you know, even if it's just our pain and our suffering 
and maybe some hope that here I am, I'm here, I belong, and I have hope. That hope is something we all need to hear. So everyone has something to share, and when, when I can raise myself up from being less than, I just bring myself to equality with everyone in this program, even those who have tons of experience and strength and hope. I can still be on the same plane because I realize that God has put me here for a reason, and that reason is to share in this community, to connect and identify. And if I don't do my part, then only the kings and queens of the program, as I put them up on the pedestal, get to be the ones to share. And none of us grows from that because we all need all of us, each other, to contribute. And that's what brings the value. And then your second question, um, you know, what are the subsequent values that I, I came up with? The, the, the values exercise was really fun for me because it got some clarity for me to be able to go to God and ask that I learn to live in these attributes and these assets and these values that I have. So, you know, my first was, <clears throat> was connection. And then I had family and love. I have security as a value. I want to create security. I want to feel secure. But what I've learned about security is I used to push and push and push to be able to get security. And that was my ego and that was my self-driven, self-centered behavior. Now my security comes from God. It comes from making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God in the step, step three. So security is still an important value, but now I want spiritual security from God, knowing that I don't have to do anything. I don't even advertise for my business. I don't advertise and I'm self-employed. God brings me the business I need. And it started in 2016, which is when I really turned my will and my life over to the care of God. And for the last five years, I've made more money in my business, not advertising, than I have in my whole career for 16 years. So that's the power. That's the power. Thank you, Kay. Thank you. Barbara S. Star one time mute. Or perhaps it was a different Barbara. Barbara. Okay. Perhaps not. Stacy K. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Anne Marie, thank you so much. I love you. Um I'm having trouble formulating a question because I had a question and then as I'm listening to the other questions and the answers, like I'm writing down more stuff, you know? And so it's, I, I love, uh, you know, this just sounds so much like emotional sobriety, you know, in Bill's letter. And, um, 
I thought of two lines in the big book, you know, be careful not to drift into morbid reflection and, and both are on the 11th step and relax and take it easy. And I was, I, I guess that the, I, I'm struggling with this a little bit. So when you, when you have a slip, an emotional slip, or say even a slip with the food, I, I ate Saturday night, I haven't eaten since, that's seven days, but, and I, I'm, I feel free from, from that, but I, you know, I did have a relapse, and I, I'm, I'm having trouble, like, really trusting God in all this, and forgiving, you know, like, we can forgive others, but, and God forgives us, but, like, I'm having trouble forgiving myself, and kind of, I'm in some, you know, in some analysis, paralysis about it, by, about, like, what went wrong, and, and, you know, like, I want to beat myself up a little bit, and I keep coming back to the book, and back to God, um, and I know that, you know, this might be about perfection, I'm not really sure, it might be about some self-defeating beliefs, or old ideas, but I, and I don't even know what my question is, except for how, how can you make a mistake, um, you know, and, and do harms, and I know we make amends, but, like, then forgive yourself, and let it go, and you know, and not drift into that place because it's just more self, right? Like, um, so I just was wondering what your experience was that with that with what happened with your kids and your husband. Did you get a question out of that, that Marie? I did. <laughs> I sure did, and I do have the experience with everything you're talking about, Stacy. I love you, my friend. Um, uh, whew, the morbid reflection, that is such a big line in the big book for me. And um, the shame that comes up when I do something really outside of how I have become through my recovery. So, you know, I've been living this pretty darn good life of spiritual connection for almost eight years in this program. And I'm a very big student of the big book. And I, and I do all my sponsoring. And boy, when the shame comes up and I have a, a failing like this, I question whether I can even sponsor. I question whether I'm even recovered. I beat myself up for my lack of faith and trust and inability to pause. So the shame that comes up the longer I am recovered is great. And and that is me just getting stuck in my surrender to self rather than surrender to God. And that, um, that, that lack of trust, you know, there's a, the push-pull, the push-pull, you know. I'm in this shame, and I can't get out of the shame, and I can't forgive myself. Then I go into analysis paralysis like you talk about. I want to find out why. Why did this happen? What happened? Why did this happen? And that's just me going into more control. This is me going into, if I had just done this, if I just controlled this, if I had just done this, I would be, I'm not spiritual enough. Where did I fall down on being, you know, in my daily connection? You know, I go into that. And really, why is irrelevant? Why has nothing to do with our ability to recover? And I know that when I sat in that shame, and that's why it took me five hours to get back to God, because I couldn't forgive myself for the sentence of being human. I am sentenced 
to this life I inhabit. I am sentenced to my humanity. If I have arisen to the level of God and I am really God, guess what? I'm dead. I'm not human anymore. Because the nature of being human is about making mistakes and having failings. Sometimes failings are greater than others. Sometimes we can get through those easy ones. Like I did this and I can apologize and, you know, I can get through it and I can see where it was because maybe I'm not as attached to it. You know, this issue with my husband is really clinging to what it meant. And it had so much historic information of unresolved conflict with my parents and that I didn't see that in the moment and that I couldn't stop in the moment, that I couldn't pause. I've done a podcast on pausing. Do you know how much shame that brought up? Oh, we should just delete that podcast because I don't know how to pause. You know, so this is what I get wrapped up in. And really the program has one solution and it's just continuing to turn to God and never buying into the emotion, into the notion that God isn't there. The door is closed because I closed it by sticking with self. And the more I can dig into what are those character defects of self and what's the payoff? What do I get out of that? I get to live in false self-pride. I get to pretend that I'm not broken and flawed. And the more I reach into this community and continue to share and, and let others help me find God, then that shame will go away. And that's what I have to do. Thank you, Stacy. Yes, thank you, Stacy. Okay, in the remaining time, we have two more questions. Let's go to Linda M. for her question. Star one to unmute, Linda. Linda M. Star one to unmute. Okay, perhaps she had to step away. Donna S. Your turn. Hi, I'm Donna S. Please go ahead with your question. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Marie, for for telling us your story and I can really relate to a lot of it and a lot of the stuff was answered on my question but I'm going to try to make some try to put some of the stuff that I wrote down together maybe maybe (laughs) we can make some sense of it um and I know you might have answered some of it but um you know like when you I get stuck and I just can't find like the willingness to take action and um and I have a similar life like you, self-employed, the breadwinner. My children are a little older. We're about the same age. But, you know, just I know we we turn to God, but how do you get out, get out of it with HP? I mean, like, really get out of it and just take care of yourself. You know, like, find the time to really, you know, take care of yourself because you're, you're so, you're really busy and, you know, I have a similar job, and it's just hard to, you know, just stop, like, during the day when I get get angst of something over work or, um, 
you know, uh, you know, something that's going on. And my husband is kind of similar to you. My husband's an alcoholic. So he's recovered, not active, but it's just, we get, we get into these things sometimes. And that, you know, we've been married a long time, but we would separate it too. So I just wondered how you get the willingness to, um, to keep going. Mm, thank you, Donna. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's just hard, you know. Um, the one thing I know is it's not as hard when I am in that communion with higher power. So I know that to be true. So as I grew through program and became more and more connected to God, I had this little orange book. It was about three inches by two inches. And I would what, have a little pen. It was really sweet. And, and I would write down all my experiences of God. And because it's, it's easy for me to um, discount, oh, that's not God. That's just coincidence. You know? And so then I started writing down every experience of God that I had. And, and it helped me to see that God is really operating in my life. And what I do is I get up at 4 or 4.30 in the morning. And no one is allowed to have that time. No one. And that's my time. And if my husband gets up, which he doesn't at 4 in the morning, but he might get up at 5 in the morning. Nobody gets that time. I set that boundary. I need to have this time for myself. Now, everybody can't get up at 4 in the morning. And I find if I get older, I can get up earlier. But, but I also have to make myself go to bed at a reasonable time so that I can get up and be fresh. So there's a certain amount of discipline in my willingness. You know, willingness is an action, but there's an action that has to follow willingness. And what drives that action is how do I want to be? What are my values? Who do I want to be in the world? And I'm not perfect at it, and I don't get up every day at 4.30 in the morning. I do my best to every day when I get up, connect with that power, and be willing to take what actions I'm given. This is a program for those who do it, not those who want it, not those who need it, but those who do it. So sometimes if I don't feel like it and I'm lazy or whatever, I just have to pray for the willingness to take the action. God, I'm willing. But boy, I can't get out of bed. I went to bed too late last night. and I can't get out of bed and I don't want to do it. And I might sleep an extra hour and maybe my connection time will be a little shorter. But it doesn't go away. And the other thing I do is I never buy into the notion that God is not there. God is always there. So when I'm sitting at my desk, I can take three seconds to go, God, you're here. You're here and I'm connected. And I can get in my car, which I frequently do. I get in my car. I put on my seatbelt. I turn next to the, to the empty seat next to me and say, God, here you are. We can have a chat now on my way to the bank or on my way to an appointment. And I talk out loud and I have a conversation with God in those moments. I take every opportunity to connect with God as friend, as, as my creator, but just to be in a casual conversation because I never buy into the notion that God isn't present. It's only I who close the door. I close the door when I think I'm too busy. When I think, well, I have false beliefs. 
when I think there's no time. There is time. I'm extremely busy, and there is time for God. I just don't think there is, and I turn to self and think I can be self-reliant, and I can't. So it's a decision. It's step three. I make a decision multiple times in the day. Sometimes I set my phone alarm, and my phone alarm is set a few times a day, and it, it just says, where is God? And then I stop and go, oh, God, you're here. And I, and I, just, I just forgot. So I, let me just say I'm making a decision right now to stay in connection. You're in charge. You're in charge. Take over. And life becomes easier because I am not sitting in morbid reflection and worry and busy. I just do what's in front of me, and I give it to God over and over. Thank you, Donna. Yes, thank you, Donna. Thanks to all who posed questions. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Marie J., for spending the morning with us. Such a beautiful, rich, and profound presentation. Always a pleasure and inspiring. my pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. Really a valuable podcast it will be. Thank you so much. Share ID 16,262. That's 16262. And we're going to close right now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.